I'm Jim Brett, President and CEO of the New England Council. Welcome to this month's episode of Inside the Corner Office, where we catch up with New England CEOs to learn more about their career paths and the incredible organizations they lead. Our guest this month is Dr. Kevin Tapp, the President and CEO of Beth Israel Leahy Health, one of New England's largest healthcare systems. We had a great discussion about his own unique career path Beth Israel Leahy's initiatives to provide top-notch medical care to patients in New England, and the impact of workforce shortages on the healthcare sector. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Dr. Tab, thank you very much for joining us here today. And uh, we always like to start these conversations by getting to know our guest a little better and learning more about how they got to where they are today. Needless to say, you have a very very interesting, unique background. And I understand that you were raised in Berkeley, California, but I uh, was very interested to learn more about how you immigrated to Israel at the age of 18 to join the military. And then what prompted that decision? And can you tell us a little more about that experience? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, Jim, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and, uh, and looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, you know, as you said, I. I grew up in, in Berkeley, California, uh, the son of academics. Um, and I, uh, from a really early age, for whatever reasons, became very interested in, uh, in my own background uh, in Israel. Um, and from a relatively early age, from the age of 12 or 13, knew that I wanted to live in Israel and made it really uh, uh, public that I intended to do that. And of course, everybody said, well, that's a phase that'll pass. Um, but uh, I stayed uh, true to that path, and uh, at the age of 18, I left home, I moved to Israel, didn't go to college, um, to the consternation of my parents, I have to say, uh, uh, went into the military, something that um, most people, men and women in Israel, uh, do, um, and served my time in the military uh, in Israel before uh, ultimately uh, going to medical school. So. Um, you know, I spent a great deal of my adult life there. I, uh, I spent close to 20 years there. Um, so not just uh, serving in the military, but uh, subsequently uh, did medical school there and did my residency there, met my wife there, and uh, my kids were born there too. Yeah. And uh, how did you decide to uh, pursue a career in medicine? Well, you know, I, 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 I really fell into it. I was trained as a medic. And I fell in love with uh, the uh, the idea of taking care of people. And so uh, uh, in some ways, I like to think that uh, medicine chose me rather than the other way around. Um, I don't come from a family of physicians. I didn't grow up imagining I was going to be a doctor. But uh, after training uh, as, a, as a medic, I, I really knew that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, Israel is much like uh, uh, Europe uh, in that you go when you finish your military service, you go directly into the medical school or law school or whatever it is that you choose. And so uh, that's what I did when I finished my, uh, my service, uh, applied for and uh, was accepted uh, to medical school. There's an interesting uh, uh, other difference, though, in Israel, which is that, uh, you know, there are no student loans there. Uh, parents don't uh, traditionally pay for college or for university. Uh, people work. Uh, kids, kids that are in university uh, work and pay their own way. 
Medical students actually have an interesting dispensation. They work, uh, but they actually work as nurses. They work as and for nurses. So pretty much every physician that trained in Israel first worked as a nurse. And I spent uh, close to five years doing two to three 12-hour shifts a week uh, in an ICU as a nurse before I ever started working as a doctor. And I frequently wonder myself, what would it be like if that were true here too? Yeah, right. Uh, right. We all had that experience. Yeah. yeah. Can you share a little more about your career path and how you uh, led to one of the uh, nation's premier academic health systems? Well, you know, I, I think I've had uh, uh, what I might call an eclectic uh, uh, a career path. Uh, none of it uh, really was planned. Uh, but as I said, after I finished my military service, I decided I wanted to go into medicine, thinking uh, that I would uh, take a traditional path in medicine and trained in, did my residency in internal medicine. But I got really interested in computers in medicine. I Nowadays, we call it informatics. I There wasn't even a term for it at the time. I didn't even own a computer at home at the time. But I was interested in this idea of using computers and lots of information to affect uh, a big change. And so um, decided after my residency, really, that's what I wanted to do. Convinced my wife uh, that we should come back to this country. I promised her it was going to be for no more than two years. Yeah. That was 22 years ago, as she has reminded me a number of times. Yeah. Uh, we came to a, a startup in healthcare IT, actually. The problem was is that we came right at the high tail end of that first tech bubble and came to a wonderful company that went bankrupt a few months after I got there. Uh, and I never imagined that that would sort of be the chorus, but things work out. And uh, it turns out that um, GE, GE Healthcare at the time, acquired the assets for out of bankruptcy court, actually. Uh, and I ended up going along with the assets, with the code and tables and chairs to work at GE. Uh, for the guy that ran GE Healthcare um, at the time, Jeff Immel, and ended up running a, a, a division within GE Healthcare and G, in GE Healthcare IT, doing that for a number of years. Never went and got an MBA, but that was my MBA. That's how I learned about business, running a PL, uh, running a division uh, for, uh, for GE. And then uh, got recruited to Stanford, uh, the university, the, the medical center there. Uh, initially in IT, and then ultimately as their chief medical officer. And then now it's it's sort of hard for me to believe it's it's been, I'm in my 12th year, uh, 11 and a half years ago, I got recruited out to Boston to run what was at the time a wonderful and smaller health system, the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and uh, that subsequently grew. And, and here we are uh, years later. And uh, speaking of the uh, Beth Israel Deaconess, uh, in two, you said in 2011, I believe it came, and then in 2019, yeah. this is the important point. In 2019, you led the creation of uh, Beth Israel Leahy Health, which brought together those academic medical centers and teaching hospitals, specialty and community hospitals, behavioral uh, services program, dozens of primary care practices to form one of the uh, region's largest uh, healthcare system. How is that merger strengthening the care that you're able to provide to uh, patients in our region? 
Well, I think it's doing a tremendous amount. Um, I think when we contemplated coming together, uh, we had a vision around what it is that we thought that we could do together. And we strongly believed that we would be better and stronger together uh, than we would uh, the individual components, each of us on our own. We never imagined though, when we came together a year to the day before the start of the worldwide pandemic, that we would be going through what we ultimately did go through. And, uh, you know, mergers are not simple. They're, uh, they're never easy. They're complicated. Uh, they involve bringing uh, multiple uh, cultures together uh, and, and both honoring the legacies of those cultures, but also creating a new culture. Doing that while dealing with a pandemic uh, is not uh, simple either. And as I said, we never imagined when we came together that we would be going through that pandemic. But I think what we discovered is that many of the things we knew we would be better at if we came together were even more true uh, during the pandemic. This idea that we could rely on each other, this idea that um, we could uh, create systems that would help different parts of the system as they needed it in real time became even more important. And it was even more apparent that it just made sense to do it as we went through the pandemic. So I think, you know, what we are doing now, extending a broad range of services across a large swath of Eastern Massachusetts is really, really important. When people think about healthcare systems, they think about hospitals. And hospitals are really important, and we have a large number of hospitals. But hospitals are not uh, the totality of what, in, what is involved in a true healthcare system. And we really have end-to-end -end services that we provide. So if you're acutely ill and need our services in your community, uh, that sometimes is provided in a community hospital. If you need more complex care, that's provided in one of our teaching or academic medical centers. But a great deal of the care that's provided is outside of the four walls of an acute care hospital. And we have a lot of that too. And so that's primary care physicians, uh, hundreds of them out in the community. Uh, that's ambulatory sites that provide care when you don't need to come into a hospital. It's all of the post-acute care kinds of things that we do, whether that's after you've had surgery or whether that's uh, keeping you out of the hospital, uh, whether that's uh, rehabilitation, whether that's behavioral health services, all of those things are really part of a, um, an end-to-end -end healthcare system. And that uh, gets at sort of what we're able to do together that we would have struggled to do each of the individual components on our own. I mean, you already underscored the importance of care in the community. Uh, can you speak to the role that community-based facilities, you know, play in providing the care to the patients? And you touched on it a little bit. Can you just expand more? Well, absolutely. I think it's at, it's at every level. First of all, um, when you are ill, uh, you're your hope is to be treated and treated well, but to be treated in your own community if possible. And we make that possible. Um, we bring, uh, we partner with those who are already in the community and we bring additional resources to the community in order to do that. 
But again, it's not just about sort of the acute care that we provide. It's all sorts of other things. You, uh, you mentioned, for instance, the, uh, the large amount of behavioral health services that we provide. So we have a model where we embed behavioral health clinicians in uh, a large number of our employed primary care practices right in those practices in the community uh, as what we call a collaborative care model. And we uh, said that uh, when we came together uh, by 2024, uh, we would provide those services in 100% of our primary care practices. And we're well on our way to doing that, notwithstanding the pandemic. Uh, the three-year goal was to do that in 50% of our primary care practices, and we've already exceeded that. And I think that's another example of the kind of thing that we desperately need to bring to the community. We hear it from our clinicians. We hear it from our patients. And that's exactly what we're doing. But there are other things. You know, uh, we are anchored by uh, major academic medical centers. And sometimes you need to come into Boston to get that care, but you shouldn't always need to come in. So uh, we provide, we send our specialists out into the community. We also do things like bringing our clinical research network, our research mission to our patients, not just in Longwood, not just in Boston, but out throughout uh, the entire system. And ultimately, we intend to make sure that every patient that interacts with our system that needs it will have access to leading edge clinical trials in their own communities in partnership with the care teams. And that's another example of the kind of partnerships that we think we can bring to the community. I know the system continues to grow and expand. Can you tell us about some of the more recent and upcoming uh, additions? Well, uh, it, it is true uh, that we continue to grow. Um, I, I'll say, uh, to start with, though, uh, that I don't believe in growing just for the sake of getting bigger. That is not a goal in and of itself. And I always ask myself, we always ask ourselves as a system, where does it make sense to do this? Where is it part of our mission? Where do people need the care that we provide? Uh, and they're not currently getting it. It's really about, again, providing that full breadth and depth of care to everybody who needs it in their own community. We've had, since the formation of BILH, a number of new additions. Um, the latest uh, was Jocelyn Diabetes Center. Jocelyn joined BILH in 2021. They're the national experts in diabetes research and care. And what we're doing is we're taking their expertise in diabetes care and research and then strengthening our entire system's ability to meet the needs of diabetes patients in the community. We have more than 100,000 patients with diabetes. We're excited about the idea of bringing Jocelyn's care that's been added to BILH now out into those communities. But we're also, uh, it's been widely uh, publicized that we're uh, in deep discussions and have signed a definitive agreement with Exeter Health Resources, uh, a wonderful community uh, a health system in New Hampshire uh, that includes Exeter Hospital. And I think that's a really good example of a, an outstanding community hospital, uh, really relatively strong, but when it looks to the future, sees a somewhat rocky future unless it engages with a strong partner. BILH, Beth Israel Heal, already employs 
and cares for a large number of residents throughout New Hampshire. And so we're really excited to work with the team at Exeter um, to bring patients in that state uh, what they want and need. We're, we're going through a regulatory process right now. Um, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we're, this is moving along on a positive track. And I hope uh, by this time next year that uh, Exeter Health Resources will be part of our family. And so, you know, those are a couple of examples, and I'm, I'm sure there will be more. Mm -hmm. This uh, Inside the Quanter Office series has given me the opportunity to speak with a variety of healthcare CEOs, both providers, insurers, and one topic that has been uh, front of mind for all of them in recent years is health equity and how we can ensure that patients of all backgrounds have access to care and more equitable health outcomes. And I know this has been a top priority at Beth Israel Leahy uh, Health. Can you tell us uh, a little more about your initiatives to address this health equity? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. It is, uh, it is a top priority for us to do. And there is a lot of work to do. I, I just say, first of all, I want to acknowledge your own strong advocacy on uh, disability rights. I know um, you have uh, been a strong advocate for disability rights. And so when we talk about uh, equity and health equity and disparities, I think um, there's a large circle of uh, people that we need to include in thinking about uh, the inequities that exist. Um, you know, there are a number of different ways uh, that we are working on this. I, uh, we're uh, really working on fostering an organizational culture that embraces diversity, equity, inclusion, so that we can strengthen our communities, so that we ourselves reflect the communities that we serve. I think it's really important when we think about how we do that to make sure that we approach it with humility. Um, the honest truth is that the healthcare system in the United States has not traditionally done well at addressing issues of, uh, of inequities in health. Uh, and um, as we think about doing better, it would behoove all of us, certainly the leaders in the healthcare system, not just to go out and assume that we know what the right things are to do, but to ask and to listen to those people that are experiencing those inequities. And we're attempting to do exactly that. We're attempting to, to, under, to work with and partner with people in the community so that we can dismantle the barriers that are out there to achieving equitable health outcomes. Part of this is acknowledging it. Part of this is measuring those inequities that exist and then uh, seeing real movement. So for example, we have uh, undertaken huge efforts uh, in areas ar uh, around things like diabetes and hypertension outcomes among our black and Hispanic patients, uh, where there are real uh, uh, known measurable uh, inequities and we're already seeing uh, progress. We're implementing protocols that remove bias and inequity from uh, our own selection and hiring and promotion uh, practices, because we have to look like the communities that we serve. We're working hard and have made movement on increasing diversity in our board and leadership team and in the care delivery staff that we have. Um, we're uh, looking to have impact beyond, though, our own four walls and our own employees. And so 
we're also, we're one of the largest employers in the state. We're looking to increase economic opportunities in the community we serve by supporting minority and women and LGBTQ and veteran and disabled owned businesses. So there's a lot of work to do. Um, but now more than ever, uh, there is no excuse uh, uh, to shy away from the really, really important work that is that is there to do. You know, in recent years, we've heard from employers across the different sectors that one of the biggest challenges they face is workforce uh, shortages. And boy, few industries have been hit harder than the healthcare uh, sector. Where, where's the challenges of the last several years have unfortunately been driven, you know, so many people away from this field. So how has the workforce shortage impacted your hospitals and the ability to provide care to uh, the many, many patients? Well, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, it is, uh, the workforce challenges are immense. Uh, and I would go beyond calling them challenges. And I would say that we are in a crisis as it relates to the workforce in healthcare. The truth here is that we are in what I would call an acute on chronic crisis. And what I mean by that is that uh, the problems that we are facing in, uh, in addressing the workforce shortages that we have did not in fact develop yesterday. Uh, and while it is true, we really almost fell off a cliff uh, during and post pandemic in terms of um, the workforce shortages that we have, we were already as an industry operating on the edge. And so <clears throat> I say that because I think it's important to remember as we think about solutions and as we think about the timeline for coming out of this crisis, we didn't get into it overnight and we're not going to get out of it overnight. There, there are no simple solutions, no easy solutions. In fact, there's no single solution, but there is a lot uh, that we can do. You know, the Mass Hospital uh, Association um, just released a report recently showing close to 20,000 full-time job vacancies in Massachusetts hospitals. And addressing that issue is going is, is, is very, uh, very complex. We've seen a record number of employees looking for new careers or early retirement. And even if that percentage were small, and it's not a small percentage, but even if it were, we're talking about some of the most experienced employees that we have that in essence are exiting the workforce to things like early retirement. And although we certainly are attractive and need to make ourselves more attractive, bringing in folks who are new to our system takes time. They don't uh, simply replace those that have left with 10, 20, 30 years of experience. The, you layer uh, that challenge on top of the fact that demand for patient care has never been higher, and you get sort of this vicious circle of dynamics that are leading to higher workloads and fewer people and more burnout, and then uh, round again. We're doing, like uh, our colleagues throughout the healthcare system, a, a fair amount. We've got a renewed focus on employee wellness. We have taken some major steps to both retain the talented employees that we have, but also to recruit that next generation of caregivers. 
we've made significant, significant investments to ensure that our uh, wages and benefits uh, remain market competitive. We're working on uh, uh, some pipeline programs and, and partnering out in the community um, so that our own employees can grow their careers and, and close some of the talent gaps, but also so that we can bring in others who've not traditionally been part of the workforce uh, that we've employed, bring them in, and we're scaling up our recruitment efforts there. So a lot going on. Um, and I certainly think these are things that have been uh, long overdue. It's going to take some time before we really see the tide change, though. You just mentioned about the partnerships. Can you just go into a little more detail the partnerships that you have with the colleges and the universities that we may be uh, familiar with? And just tell me you know, a little more of those partnerships and how they're working. Well, those, the, the, those, the kinds of partnerships that we and others have are really uh, key uh, to making sure that we've got a strong workforce, not just next year, but for years to come. And I think, by the way, <clears throat> it's really key to the regional economy. Um, and so we're partnering with uh, one of the uh, one of the wonderful many wonderful things about being here in New England uh, is this network of exceptional colleges and universities that we have here. And so we're <clears throat> we're taking care of that uh, by partnering. So a couple of examples. Last year, uh, one of our community one of our larger community hospitals, Beverly Hospital, Beverly and Addison Gilbert Hospitals, worked together with Endicott College, and they. Uh, they put together a new collaboration that really strengthens the pool of nursing talent on the North Shore. Um, and so, and then what that does for us is it establishes Beverly and, and Addison Gilbert as a preferred clinical site for Endicott's nursing program. Endicott has 600 nursing students. And those nursing students want to work at places like ours, and we want to make sure that they uh, have a place. They're partnered with mentors, and then they get hands-on clinical experience, the kinds of things, the kinds of essential skills that are going to really prepare them uh, to enter into the workforce. Um, so that's an example, and I think you know there are other examples like that. It's not just about nursing, though, to be clear. It's really at every level. It's entry-level uh, people. It's uh, making sure that people who have come in uh, to do one job uh, say the people that are doing a wonderful job at uh, preparing the food or cleaning the rooms have pipeline opportunities within our own institutions to say they've done that. Those that want to do more, we need to help them uh, be able to do more within our own institutions. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Endicott. Endicott College is one of uh, uh, more active uh, members of the New England Council under the great leadership of Dr. DeSalvo. Yeah, so he'd be he'd be pleased to hear that you're pleased with the partnership there. You know, you mentioned the word uh, mentorship. I must uh, think that a lot of people must reach out to you uh, for mentorship. What do you what do you share with them as guidance, and what have you learned from people you're mentoring? Yeah, no, I, uh, a lot of people do reach out, and I try, and I definitely um, try to make time for it. I feel that it's really important. Um, People have helped me all along my path, and I think it's um, it's a wonderful when I can to be able to help others uh, that are earlier in their career. I'd say that um, the most common question that I get from a physician, say, early in their uh, career or, or even mid-career is, 
how how do I plan my career path so that I can do what you're doing? And that I got those questions when I was a chief medical officer at Stanford, and I certainly get them as CEO, first at Beth Israel Deaconess and Beth Israel Lehiel. And my answer to them is always, the truth is I have no idea. And what I mean by that is, none of what I did was actually planned. In fact, I don't even believe that you can set out 20, 25 years before you get to doing what you're doing and set out in a linear way, these are all the steps I can and should take to do something uh, in 20, 25 years. Things change. Um, I never imagined when I uh, went into medicine that I would transition to doing healthcare IT. And then when I did healthcare IT, I didn't imagine I would transition back to academic medical center. And then when I did that, I didn't imagine that uh, I would ultimately uh, be running a large system in the Northeast. What I, uh, what I counsel people is to be open to trying different things. Some of those things may look like they are not on the path, but it's the diversity of different experiences that you, that you try, that you take. Experiences in academic medicine, experiences in business, experiences in healthcare abroad and in this country, West Coast and East Coast. It's the totality of those experiences that really uh, have allowed me uh, ultimately to do uh, what I'm doing now and to shape my own worldview about the things that are important. And so, again, I tell people to be open to different ideas, to take off the blinders, in essence. Sometimes, no matter what you're doing, you're on a track and you think that the only things you can do are the things that people to the left of you and to the right of you are doing. And sometimes that's true. But lots of times, there, it's a big, wide world out there, and there are lots of different opportunities. Try different things. And you may find uh, that you enjoy doing something very different than what you're doing. And who knows where you'll end up? You know, our members always like to hear what leaders like yourself are doing to hone your skills. And what, what do you focus on in your role as a leader? You know, um, I focus on a small number of things. I think the most important word that you just used, though, was focus. Uh, because I uh, think uh, that uh, the role of a leader is really to focus on the things that will make the biggest difference. And the temptation, I think, that leaders have, leaders such as myself have, and certainly when I was new in the role, the temptation was, attempt, was to attempt to do a little bit of everything. And I think that's a real mistake. And I found when I tried to do that, that doing a little bit of everything uh, meant that I wasn't effective at anything. And so I went back for myself and thought about how could I be more effective for the institution? And I realized that what I needed to do was focus on a smaller number of things. And I realized that that was not only a good idea, that was a better idea than doing what I'd done before for a variety of reasons. We're a large organization. We have 36,000 employees. I like to think that for most things that we do, 35,999 of them know how to do those things better than I do. And there's a very small number of things that I can help with. As a leader, what I need to focus on is empowering those within the organization to do the good work that needs to get done. You know. The really good ideas in our organization, they don't come from my corner office uh, in the corporate offices. 
They come from the people who actually do the work. And so it's my job to listen, to help prioritize, and to wave away, to, to uh, remove the barriers uh, from uh, letting those good ideas come to fruition. And I hope that that's, in fact, uh, what happens uh, every day within Beth Israel Lehi Health. What helps you uh, to be grounded? Well, um, you know, uh, I have a life outside of work. And mm -hmm. I think it's important to remind myself uh, of mm -hmm. that, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, work and my profession is incredibly important, but, but it's important also to be able to have an entire world outside of uh, the day-to-day -day work. And so uh, it's my family. Mm -hmm. um, it's doing things like uh, running. I, I'm a, I, I love to run and I run uh, half marathons uh, all over the world. Uh, reading. Um, I make beer at home. Uh, a variety of things that have nothing to do yeah. with my day-to-day -day job. And I think having that balance is important too. Absolutely. You know, given the uh, New England Council's focus on federal policy, we always like to wrap up these conversations talking a bit about uh, policy priorities. Are there any particular policy priorities for BILH at the federal level? Well, there's a lot that we watch uh, and uh, affect us uh, deeply. I mean, I'll give a, a couple of different areas that are important to us. We're closely watching anything that impacts or creates change in Medicare. And uh, we wanna make sure that as Medicare payment and policy uh, evolves and it is constantly evolving, uh, that it's really evolving to meet the rapid pace of change we're seeing in healthcare right now. But it's not just around things like Medicare, It's we care deeply about research and making sure that federal, the federal policy initiatives that are put in place uh, protect and enhance uh, uh, the research that's done. I can tell you in New England, that's incredibly, incredibly important, more than almost any other region uh, in the country. We care deeply about federal policy that's evolving around the workforce. We just talked about the workforce. So training and medical education, but also immigration. I don't believe that we're gonna be able to solve the gaps that we have in the healthcare workforce without making changes to our immigration policies. Women's reproductive rights. Uh, you know, the Dobbs decision made protecting access to reproductive care a huge policy priority for us. Uh, that was true before, it is certainly uh, true now. Behavioral health, we've talked about that. Uh, public health, we're now watching very carefully the, the expiration of the public health emergency. Um, so a lot of things uh, going on at the federal level that affect us on a daily basis that we watch very carefully. Well, Dr. Tab, I wanna thank you for taking time to join us today, but perhaps more importantly, thank you. Thank you and your team, the Beth uh, Israel Leahy, for all that you do to keep our community safe, particularly needless to say, over the last few years. And to those of you who are tuning in, thank you for joining us today. I hope you've learned something from our conversation. I know I did. Be sure to tune in next month for our next installment of Inside the Corner Office. And have a great day. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. All right, doctor. Thank you.